This time, we take a look at the future noir crime thriller, Minority Report. And along the way, we ask, just how far is the government willing to go to stop crime? Does Tom Cruise not run enough in this movie? And why 2054 will hopefully be just all right. Everybody runs on this edition of Force Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, 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 fans. Welcome back to another great edition of Force Fed Sci-Fi. My name is Sean Michael Culp, and with me is my friend and co-host. I am pre-crime officer Chris Rupp. <laughs> pre-crime, baby. So you're going to get a career in pre-crime, you think, huh? You know, I mean, we've talked about before on the show just how hard of a job that police officers have. But imagine how, I don't want to say easier, but how much more, I guess, smooth is your job as a police officer when you already know the majority of crimes that are going to happen. Right. Yeah, that's that's right. They said in uh, this movie... For pre-crime, usually they happen, what, they said four days prior to the crime? It's only, like, the crime of passions that happen, like, within, they only get the little ball, like, an hour before it happens or something? Yeah, they get the, the red balls that are usually, like you said, the crimes of passion, and then rarely anybody has a premeditated murder anymore, and those are the, the brown balls that come through. Yes. And those are like days in advance so they can prep <laughs> the crime of passion. That's still like running high in 2054. So Minority Report, folks, this one, the, a little uh, tidbit history. I just want to tell them, Chris, this was actually our first Steven Spielberg movie that came up in the draw. But <laughs> you were like, no, we're not doing Minority Report as, as our first Steven Spielberg film. Am I right? Yeah, uh, the because I think we both kind of set aside that saying we wanted like a classic Spielberg sci-fi film to be our very first one. Unfortunately, it was Jurassic Park that came up first, and is I mean not that Minority Report isn't a decent Spielberg film, but it's not on the same level as say some of his earlier science fiction classics. Definitely. And it came up way too early in the show's run. I think it was within the first dozen or so episodes that Minority Report is picking. Like, it's way too early to be diving into the Spielberg <laughs> well. And, you know, I'm glad that we got Minority Report this, like, later on. Because I think as podcast hosts, early on, we wouldn't have been able to, like, digest this film. It wouldn't. I hope it goes better this round, right? But Jurassic Park at that time in 2019 was it was perfect for the time, you know, us starting out. It was an easy review. Yeah, and I think the plot of Minority Report is a bit ubiquitous that everybody seems to just know about it just from hearing the title of the film. You have Tom Cruise playing this uh, this intelligent savvy cop in an age where m crime and specifically murder is predicted using this new like kind of psychic technology and then Tom Cruise himself is accused of eventually committing a murder and now he has to go on the run and evade capture and unravel this conspiracy so it's 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 really interesting to note just how 
well known the plot has become in the tw- almost 20 years since the film came out and yet you know it's hard to it may be hard nowadays to find somebody who's actually watched the movie i know it's such a to me this film was always a staple in my childhood i remember watching this every summer I think after like it was like sixth grade, seventh grade, it was like almost every year I would watch Minority Report because I thought this film was just fantastic. But not many people has heard of this film. They're like, or they said they watched it like back in the day when it came out and it's been too long. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it, it was one of those films that may have gone underappreciated in its time. And we'll certainly unwrap some of the aspects that's helped age the film uh, very well. And. But I think it kind of, but I think a lot of the credit has to go to Spielberg, uh, Spielberg's vision for this film, where he really wanted to create a true film that was set in the future and amping up the technology. And I mean, it was surprising to see like the, that. Yes, this was Spielberg's first collaboration with Tom Cruise because they were trying to find a project to work together for years before Minority Report was able to matriculate. That's right. That's right. Because then they did like War of the Worlds, I think in 05 or something like that. And that was just, that was great. Because Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise is great in any film, I believe. And Spielberg, he's just great as well. He's He just has that quality like Martin Scorsese where pretty much almost every film that they put out, nearly every film you go, wow, this is just an easy watch. It's moving. I learned something from it. It's just one of those brilliant uh, filmmakers. Yeah, and easily one of the staples of a Spielberg film is pulling down an all-star cast. And obviously we've talked about Tom Cruise at some length, but it's hard to... I mean, obviously we imagine Tom Cruise as this leading man now. And I mean, he's one of a handful of actors nowadays that's able to carry a film on his name alone but this was still in like in the early 2000s where he would you know go back and forth between doing these character studies like he would do in magnolia and vanilla sky and then he would go do cameos and comedies like austin powers gold member and then in the middle of all that is minority report this was when tom cruise this was before he basically became mission impossible man this was when I say that Tom Cruise still was kind of an actor. He was like the Oscar actor that pushed himself and took on interesting roles like a Jerry Maguire, like you said, Magnolia. But unfortunately, now his career has definitely just become doing a Mission Impossible like every three years. <laughs> He's kind of turned into like Robert Downey. Hey, you know, which is all right by me as as long as the Mission Impossible films are amazing. I don't care what the man does with his career. Yeah, and, and I think you're right they are amazing all of them which i don't do they count as sci-fi do you think like <laughs> kfab but are we gonna <laughs> are we gonna do it <laughs> no you know i love those movies but there isn't an argument in the world that anybody can make that those films are have any sort of science fiction in them I'm, it's 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 impossible I, mean, I guess you could say like the gadgets maybe but I mean that then that's like saying oh then we have to review James Bond because of the science quote unquote science so uh, you're opening up a whole can of worms that we're not ready to deal with if we start including in Mission Impossible films in this show (laughs) we haven't the well hasn't run dry yet 
so Tom Cruise, like you said, he is our leading man, is Chief John Anderton, which forever I thought it was Anderson, and it's Anderton with the T. Another fantastic actor that's in this film that recently just passed is Max von Sydow, and he's been in a couple films, I think, that we've reviewed. He's director Lamar Burgess, and I know with him, he's great in this film. I mean... Max von Sydow, I don't have enough words that I could say. I just, I think he's fantastic as an actor. He just, his films, his characters are always rich and diverse, just phenomenal. Yeah, it was it was impossible to kind of nail down how what kind of character Max von Sydow was great at playing because he was great at everything, and unfortunately, he was one of the the great many uh, actors and and just figures in the entertainment industry that was taken away from us in 2020 but so rest in peace max von Sydow. <laughs> indeed indeed uh who else we got we got a young colin farrell as danny the uh government worker which uh this is young colin farrell a very a very young colin farrell and this is still i mean in 2002 i think you couldn't find a an actor who was more on the rise than Colin Farrell, because before this he had appeared in uh, Tigerland, which was a Vietnam soldier documentary, um, like the drama piece. He did American Outlaws, which is like a Western comedy. He did. He was in a World War II POW movie with uh, Bruce Willis, and then he did all these great projects after Minority Report comes out, and his career kind of like stop for a little bit i think he was dealing with some personal issues but i mean he just manages to find himself in like one or two great movies every single year it seems like now oh he's he's just great i love colin farrell because he's one of those guys that he got really big into hollywood even uh, to like what was that movie that he did with uh freaking total recall the reboot and that was like colin farrell at his career where he was like immersed in Hollywood where he's doing the big blockbusters. And then some point around like 2010, 2011, he just said, screw it. I'm only going to do weird independent films that are just incredible. And he did like in Bruges, which is amazing. The lobster. And as an actor, he's just so versatile. I think I just, like you said, like he, every year I feel like, especially recently he's come out with just such an interesting film. That's just so rich and like low budget, like my favorite. And he's just, he's phenomenal. I got mad respect for that dude. Yeah. It's, it's real hard to nail down like Max von Saito. It's hard to nail down Colin Farrell. Cause he's so great at playing everything. Definitely. Definitely. Who else, Chris? Well, we've got Samantha Morton who plays Agatha. She is the, the senior female precog and she was still relatively unknown, but she would appear um, in a film next year called In America, which is about a an Irish immigrant family that moves to New York, and that's an amazing movie. Uh, uh, Jaiman Hansu uh, appears in that as well. We've also got Neil McDonoghue, who plays Fletcher. He's uh, John Anderton's second-in-command of the pre-crime unit. He had previously worked with Sp uh, Spielberg um, in the miniseries Band of Brothers. He plays more of a supporting mm -hmm character but his role is he is fantastic okay. in that um we've got we've got steve harris as jad um at the time minority report came out he was on a television show it was a legal drama called the practice which was really kind of, of underrated in its time 
That was a yeah, that was a great show. Okay. Uh, we've got we've got Lois Smith as Iris Hinneman. And I was actually surprised to learn that her career goes all the way back to 1955. And she is still working. And apparently she's got three films that are set to come out whenever, you know, it's safe to have people in movie theaters yeah. now. Um, <laughs> she, We've got Catherine Morris as Laura Anderton. And I read up on her filmography kind of leading up to this film. And she had some... I don't want to say bad luck, but let's just say that like the cards weren't in her favor because before Minority Report, she was in two big films. She was in Artificial Intelligence, which was also directed by Spielberg, <laughs> and The Last Castle with Robert Redford and James Gandolfini. So she was in both of those films, but her scenes were ultimately cut out of the final cut of those films. Oh, that sucks. But she would eventually be cast as a, a lead in the police drama Cold Case, and that ran for, like, I think about over 150 episodes. So she did find success. Um, oh, yeah. And we can't forget the incredible film uh, Paycheck with Ben Affleck. <laughs> that she right, well, in. Let's, let's not call that incredible just yet because it still hasn't come up <laughs> in the list just yet. <laughs> can poop on that later who else <laughs> we've anyone got, else of merit well we got peter stormare as uh the the uh the eye doctor solomon p eddie the the crazy guy there oh, that's that's right that's right and then we've got uh the great tim blake nelson as gideon the uh the wheelchair bound custodian and then i think we have some uh like cameos apparently on the subway passengers of cameron diaz Cameron Crowe and Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, I'm not sure how they were able to get them in the film. I think it may have just been because um, uh, Cruz was in Vanilla Sky and then all three of those people were involved in it. So it may have just been like, hey, I'm doing this movie. Do you want to want to make a cameo appearance in my next movie? You know, kind of deal. Yeah, I've seen that a lot with actors, especially actors that are friends. They just like appear, but like these guys, I didn't even catch them in this film because I saw this. I read it prior to watching the film. I'm like, where the hell are they? <laughs> it's one of those blink if you miss it. Yeah, apparently it was on the the subway scene where Tom Cruise gets recognized, and then uh, like, I, but I'm I'm not even I wasn't even paying attention to the people in that subway car. I was paying attention to the dude who recognizes Tom Cruise and realized, oh crap, I'm in a subway car with a future criminal. I need to I need to leave. Heck yeah, because Steven Spielberg's such an amazing film director. He's great at creating tension, so we don't even notice the surroundings. We're just worried that Tom Cruise is going to get caught. Oh, bless your heart, Spielberg. <laughs> So, I mean, the lead up to making Minority Report the movie kind of goes all the way back to 1956. And one of the the legendary science fiction writers of, of our time, Philip K. Dick, in his story titled The Minority Report. And if you're a fan of sci-fi films, I mean, you odds are you have seen one of Philip K. Dick's stories adapted for the big screen. I think the, the most prominent one being uh, Blade Runner which came from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And this one kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. I mean, because the the big takeaway from Philip K. Dick's adaptations is that there are 
a lot of changes from the original story to the the film we get on screen and minority report there are a lot of changes but i mean the the main core of the film is retained i mean you have john anderton you have the precogs you have um anderson getting accused of a future murder and then that murder kind of happening and becoming this weird self-fulfilling prophecy so the 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 main elements the important elements of the original story are there for us to see okay and this was originally envisioned as a sequel to total recall the the arnold schwarzenegger film from 1990 because it was optioned back in 1992 and i have no idea how they would have fit minority report into <laughs> the canon of total total recall That's... but apparently that was what they originally wanted to do yeah i like to, i have no idea how i guess maybe it's like one of those universe films kind of like with uh split you know and uh unbreakable where up oh, i guess they're in the same town it's just another part of the at the planet but i agree with you that's weird I heard that uh, <laughs> that uh, Cruz and Spielberg wanted to do, like, they've been wanting to make movies for a long time. I guess Spielberg was set to direct Cruz and Rain Man, but then I guess decided to do Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade again. And instead, he did that instead of Rain Man, <laughs> which that would have been interesting to see a Spielberg Rain Man. But it had been a well, while. Well, I mean, it kind of worked out for everybody. I mean... The Last Crusade ends up becoming one of the best in cementing the Indiana Jones trilogy is one of the best ever. And Rain Man would win a bunch of Academy Awards. So I think it worked out for everybody at the end. Definitely. Those are two great films that I would recommend watching. But they did. They finally, oh, absolutely. after uh, a lot of script work from that I was reading, they rejected a lot of a lot of scripts. Spielberg finally decided to take it up and go for it, man. He said, all right, let's do this. Well, yeah, I mean, I read that too, and I think the majority of those script changes were revolving around having Danny Whitwer as sort of the main villain in the film, and I think you can definitely feel the DNA of that in several scenes. I think in particular when Whitwer is in John's apartment and he finds those drugs, but I think one of the best scenes in the film is when John is leaving pre-crime headquarters and he's stopped by Whitwer in the elevator and you think he's going to shoot him in the neck. And what, even when he says, I don't hear a red ball, and then the alarm starts to go off and you see this look in Colin Farrell's face of <laughs> of fear and apprehension where he has where he thinks for a second that, that Anderton is going to shoot him in the face. I know. It's it's in a such a, an amazing scene. That scene's so great. I didn't catch that until this last time watching it. I'm like, oh my god, how well played, well played. I love that scene, and you know that speaks uh, just like levels to the script itself because they do set up his character for kind of being the villain, but then the film noir elements of it comes and takes place as you find out that it's Lamar Burgess that's behind it all. And actually, Whitwer is just a federal government employee that's trying to investigate and figure out what the hell is going on. And he knows that Anderton's not the one. So I, I really like his character. and it, That's why it's so sad to me when Colin Farrell's character gets killed. Because you're like, damn it! <laughs> he wasn't the bad guy. Well, it's really... 
Well, it's this dichotomy, too, of Anderton being like a tech-savvy cop, but I never really got the sense that Anderton was like a street-smart cop, and Whitwer is the cop that uses the technology to aid in his investigative skills. I mean, but he doesn't reject the street-smart notions of you know, following the evidence and being thorough with his job. Whereas Anderton is almost over reliant on this, this brilliant technology that's in front of him. Yes. It's, it's really interesting seeing how the cops are different from like a federal government police officer to being these cops, these policemen like Tom Cruise's character, that's only trained to work with pre-crime. It makes it interesting. And we can, I guess, maybe talk about later on, like with the controversial scene with him shooting the guy and everything when we hit our, uh, I guess, toxic fandom and all that. <laughs> but yeah, kind of touching on some more uh, pre-production notes. I mean, I read that production was delayed twice. So Tom Cruise could go off and make Mission Impossible 2, and then Spielberg went off to make Artificial Intelligence. So there was a long way to actually get this film on screen and so long that they actually the original actors they had cast for their roles all dropped out matt damon ian mckellen kate blanchett and jenna elfman were all cast at one point but they all left because of the delays in production and even javier bardem was offered a role meryl streep was offered a role like there was all these great actors that were that could have been in this film, but they all dropped out. Oh my God. <laughs> That's you're saying all these names. I'm like, Holy crap. What kind of film would it be with these people? Holy crap. I mean, I would have been uh, me personally. Like I would have been okay without Matt Damon as Danny Whitwer, but I would have loved to have seen a version of minority report with Ian McKellen as Lamar Burgess. I think that would have been fantastic. That would have, Definitely. Or like Meryl Streep in there because she's always great. Javier Bardem. It's just all these different actors. It's like, holy crap, how how different would this movie be? But at the same token, I think like Cruz obviously is the high point in this film. He's the guy. He's the he brings the weight, you know, for why we should see this. I think having a little bit less famous people instead of having like a Damon or a Streep on there is what kind of makes this film more interesting because it's not all these people that you're starstruck seeing as like other actors. Cause if it was like George Clooney as one of the sidekicks, we'd be George would probably need a bigger role. You know what I'm saying? And we wouldn't be able to focus on just Tom Cruise, John Anderton and the mysteries around him. Right. And it's, I mean, we can play the game of what if all day, but the yeah. bottom line is like, it, it's still a great cast that we got in this film and i mean it is what it is i mean it's unfortunate that these actors dropped out and yeah <laughs> and due to the delays but i mean we still got a great cast at the end of it so nobody is really complaining here oh hell no <laughs> i did hear with this film that it kind of spielberg initially did something where he decided to take a percentage of the box office gross in order to save money on the budget and I guess that happened with uh, Tom Hanks with Saving Private Ryan. That was like when he started it, where it's to like save money on the budgets, the actors would just take a percentage of the gross. And that is kind of smart to me. 
it well, it's like a gamble essentially, right? Because they're hoping that it grosses enough. But if you take fifteen percent and your film is like an Avengers that grosses like a billion, two billion dollars, you just made a crap load of money. So Spielberg did that. Yeah, it's very much a gamble when you do something like that. And like I, th- and I've talked about it before on the show, but I think one of the more legendary deals in Hollywood was Jack Nicholson appearing as the Joker in Tim Burton's Batman because he took a percentage of the gross in that film and it ended he ended up making like 70 million dollars from that role oh because because he was so smart and played the long game with that film oh my god that's like what Harrison Ford did I think for uh The Force Awakens he like took like one percent or something of the gross and he made just like a crap load of money it's smart I mean but like you said it's an absolute gamble when you do something like that though Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> You're just, you just got to hope that it works out. What else? Do you got any other pre-production? Anything interesting? Nah, man. Let's get into the meat of Minority Report. And obviously, the big setting of the film is right away, we're told that this film is set in 2054. So when it came out, this was 52 years in the future. I mean, obviously, now we're much closer to that timeline now but it definitely gave the filmmakers a lot of leeway and a lot of freedom to really envision a future which is both beautiful and shiny, but also has this very dark stain beneath that shine there. Yes. It does seem dark and dreary almost. Like, literally, the environment. I thought that it took place in, like, Seattle, because it, it just seemed like the skies were all gray. Like, it never seemed like it was sunny out in the future. Or maybe it was setting up for, like, a prerequisite of um, pollution and everything being in our future. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah, I mean, there was... Um, I would almost describe it as, like, a lack of natural light in the film to kind of emphasize this, that the technological... Um, reliance that the population has come to to grow accustomed to and it's just it almost looked like there was a bunch of halogen lights instead of a sun above people definitely i think the film for 2054 that world it's not totally our future i don't believe but i think it does have a lot of elements that we i can see in the next 20 years like there was advertisements everywhere Everything included eye scanning because like to buy things. I mean, I saw they had I it was like the club scene or whatever, the virtual reality where there people would go into these pods and they could experience like sex or like killing their boss or getting an award. I can see that becoming something real in the next 20 years for sure with the virtual reality. It's pretty interesting. See, I love seeing movies depictions of the future but i didn't uh, i didn't think the car scenes with like the super highways or anything was real with the automatic cars because it just seemed way too elaborate or as alexis my partner said they could do an entire movie on the highways (laughs) the construction of the cars so those were my thoughts on the future how about you well i do like that the film is able to kind of maintain this sense of groundedness i mean it does it is set in washington dc so you have 
a lot of the monuments, uh, you have the, the Washington monuments feature prominently at the end of the film. And it does manage to retain some of the historical buildings. And I think this is sort of an element that we kind of want to quickly skip over when we talk about future films. Because, you know, when you when we look at a film, say like iRobot, for instance, it's set in Chicago. And yet it hardly retains any of the elements that actually make it Chicago. Like we, we see this film is set in Washington, D.C. And... We have no question. We, we, we are able to maintain that belief that this film is firmly set in the Washington, D.C. area throughout the entirety of the film because we see the historic buildings, but then we also we get these added, uh, added elements to it. We have these massive federal housing projects that seem to go up you know, 200 stories. There's also a mention mm-hmm. of the giant slum, the sprawl. Um, those the, oh, those yeah. those magnetic levitation highways that you talk about, and I, I have to agree that those just seem wildly impractical because they're connected to buildings. For God's sakes, there's no way anything <laughs> like that could work. No, and and just the, the the awkward angles that those make, and I would I would never want to drive in one of, on one of those. It would just it would give me such <laughs> bad vertigo and make me so dizzy. <laughs> You're right. They're going so fast and spinning. I agree, though, with you on throwing a bunch of people in these giant, like, apartment skyscraper buildings. We see that a lot in uh, these future films. I think the prominent one that we saw was Dread, where it was like these slums are in these giant skyscrapers. I think that could maybe be our future if the population, you know, if global warming, we don't get a handle on it and we all start moving towards the cities i could definitely see that being a future well again there has to be something that necessitates that whether there's some type of population boom or you know we have a lot of political refugees that come over to our country or there's just some type of massive poverty on a scale that's never been imagined before to really necessitate the building of these gigantic sprawls and I like that you pointed out Dread because I was actually thinking the exact same thing. But those were huge. Those were like literal, like miniature cities encased in a giant, you know, apartment building slash slum. So it was hard to really kind of classify those in a good way. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it was. But I think it's also important to kind of try and examine exactly what led us to this point because after that prologue in the film where Anderton uh, uh, busts up the, uh, the the Howard Marks murder and all that, which to me I think is one of the great Steven Spielberg prologues of any of his films and definitely a trademark of what he likes to do. We then see a commercial that describes murder as reaching epidemic levels. And mm-hmm. like they, I could not figure out like what what the exact statistics were, but I saw that number in that commercial that was growing millions and millions and millions and millions and millions. So apparently people are just murdering each other left and right on the street in, you know, the the late twenty forties. <laughs> I know. That was that was my question too. I was like, how what? Because I Googled the murder rates and I'm like, there's no way. Mur- crime is going down, except in Chicago. But everywhere <laughs> else it seems crime is just like pretty chill. 
So where where did this start? You know, when did this murderous rampage begin? You know, it's it's hard to pin down, but I think it has to be a factor of things kind of leading up to that point. I think it has to be a combination of either police departments just being so stretched thin that they can't address these problems, or there's some type of, of like there's some type of other issue. Either there's poverty on a massive scale, income inequality, unemployment, drug use, um, lack of contraceptives, things like that. So I think there it it has to be. You know, like how they say in a plane crash, it's not one thing that brings a plane down. It's a combination of errors. And I think that's yeah. what's that's what it is here. It's a combination of either all of these things or some of these things. It's the police okay. either being too stretched thin or they're not just they're not good at their jobs. High unemployment, drug use. It's a combination of all that that's leading to this massive high murder rate. I, I, yeah, I, I think you're right. <laughs> the problems are always, it's never one thing. Maybe, maybe it is the defunding of the police or something. Who knows? It could be a big population boom, like you said, that's led to this because, you know, having a bunch of people on top of each other, the murderers are going to go out. <laughs> well, maybe it isn't exactly defunding the police. Maybe it's giving the police too much money because, I mean, there is no. Yeah. There's no correlation between, you know, having better equipment for your police department and a reduction in crime. That's, you know, just because yeah. you give every single police officer a shotgun, it doesn't mean that the murder rate's going to go down. <laughs> that's right. That is true. So that's a that's a curious question to have. What did you think about? So the film talks a lot about pre-crime and the ethics about knowing well basically the whole thing is about anderton getting called out like a ball drops that he's going to kill someone before it actually happens and so he's on the run because he's going to get arrested for essentially murdering someone so that's the whole conundrum with this film what is the morality behind pre-crime is it moral or ethical to actually arrest people that are going to commit a crime is like, and how do you know that they're actually going to go through it? Now we see in the film, uh, Colin Farrell's character, they have a scene where they discuss this and he takes one of the red balls and he rolls it and then it's about to fall off the table. Anderton grabs it, or maybe I switch the characters and he said, why'd you catch the ball? And the, he said, well, it's going to fall on the ground. Well, the people that are busted on pre-crime, they're usually going to kill someone anyway. So the likelihood of them not killing someone is very far. So is it moral or ethical? Well, I mean, and you mentioned that pivotal scene where Whitworth catches that ball that Anderton threw, and Danny could have easily made the choice of not catching it, improving John Wright, or he could have catching it and also proving the point so i think anderton's point would have been proven regardless if danny caught the ball or not but like they if if they haven't actually committed the crime then no law is technically broken i mean i mean you can think of i mean people every day probably think about killing their boss or they have a thought about you know <laughs> this weird you know like fantasy of being a serial killer but nobody acts on those things you're not there isn't this isn't 
George Orwell's 1984, where you have the thought police coming to take you away because you briefly had a fantasy about pushing your boss down a flight of stairs. <laughs> but then also the idea of free will plays into this. I mean, and I mean, is it really free will if your actions are to be known by the authorities above you? And it yeah. really it kind of takes away people's autonomy in a in in this world where they're not i mean they can't think about killing anybody or they can't actually plan to do it and and it's mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's interesting to see just the people go along and think that yeah. well like i don't have to worry about it therefore i'm not going to think about it and it's the same issue like when the NSA was busted for surveilling on people through their laptops and computers and all that people are saying well i'm Mm -hmm. not doing anything wrong therefore i have nothing to worry about it's like that's not true the government is watching you regardless if you did anything wrong it's invading your privacy and in this case in minority report it's invading your thoughts and it's determining your will as an individual (laughs) human being everything but just with murder apparently that's the only thing they invade they're just curious about you wanting to kill someone. It, it is right. That is an interesting conundrum. Are we actually free? Do you actually have free will then? And I think that's like what the whole film is about. You getting a choice. You have the choice to change your future. And you're not being, you're not a slave to the pre-crime is basically the whole point of the film. Are we a slave to the pre-crime? I do find it fascinating that murders just like stop though. With with pre crime, they just like end. It's like once people figure out, oh, they're they're invading my thoughts. They're listening to what I'm thinking about. Oh God, I don't want to kill anyone anymore. <laughs> but then it gives rise to that fantasy fulfillment that we see in that. Um, I guess for lack of a better phrase, I'm going to call it a VR bar. You know, you, you people go yes. in and live out their fantasies, and yeah, that's you have that guy who's talking to Rufus T. Riley. He says, "I want to kill my boss." <laughs> He's like, "I really, really want to kill my boss." <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like, if you have thoughts about really like deep thoughts about <laughs> killing your boss, I'm gonna give a piece of advice for everybody who may be listening to the show who has those thoughts. Do yourself a favor. Just go find a different job if you want to kill your boss that bad. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Don't do it. In, don't do it. Don't do it. Invest in a dartboard. Beef up your resume. Put it on Indeed or LinkedIn and find a different job. <laughs> Join an MMA class. Get get your aggression out in some way. In a nice, healthy way. Or just leave. Yeah, don't, don't do it. So moral and ethical i don't know i don't i think it isn't that moral or ethical to invade people's thoughts you know but at the same time that well, the question is do you want like how how much is safety worth to you i guess would be the good question is it worth giving up some freedoms personal freedoms you know and having that surveillance to essentially be safe well, and I, I think you kind of hit on what sort of what makes this film relevant even today, because we're we're almost faced with this on a daily basis. I mean, living in the midst of a pandemic where have, wearing a mask is almost seen as 
like the step of an authoritarian government, whereas a lot of there's a lot of data to back up the utility and the usefulness of wearing masks to not only protect yourself, but other people around you. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing that we see in Minority Report, where you know, I'm where, yes, like I have to sacrifice, you know, my own private thoughts, but it means that. I'm not I'm not I don't know anybody in my life who's going to be murdered. That's good. I don't know anyone in my <laughs> I mean I I mean I have been pretty fortunate in my life and I'm sure you have as well. I mean I I don't know but I don't know anybody who has been violently taken from me like that, but I know people have and it's a very it's a destructive emotional event that comes into somebody's life to have somebody who you love and care about taken away from you in such a violent manner. And I mean, the film is absolutely correct in that there is nothing more destructive to the human bond than the act of murder. And it even goes back to, to the Bible when, um, what is it? Cain killed Abel, his brother, and was marked as a, as a criminal for the remainder of his days. And it's just, it's a destructive act, both, physically and metaphysically as they as they mentioned early on in the film and that's why i think this film is so fantastic because it talks about that losing someone due to murder it talks about losing your child do in like pedophilia right a parent losing their child to what could be pedophilia or essentially murder and then the morals and ethics of all that, you see the horrors that's done to people's lives. And if you know someone that whose uh, kids have been murdered or something, which I, I know some people, it's not on my family side. Well, one of my great uncles was murdered in the 80s before I was born. But like no one, I think it's like a terrible thing. And I think with understanding that in the film it kind of puts forth the case as to why pre-crime is such a great thing and you can understand the motivations of like anderton for wanting to join because like his son was taken from him you know but at the same time you know like we said is it worth it well (laughs) i don't know if probably it's worth it if like there's millions and millions of people getting murdered every year i think then pre-crime would be worth it but if there's only like, you know, like 10,000 people out of 400 million that get murdered a year, then it's like, well, I don't know. That's a tough thing to say, because how many people are getting murdered by like the cops or like overseas, you know, and all that. It's a tough area. I mean, it, it does a good job. The film does a great job of trying to navigate these these murky waters. But eventually the the illusion or the veneer of pre-crime is demolished when we realize that the system isn't perfect and it can be manipulated. And we see that in great fashion at the end of the film. I mean, but the mechanics of that are a bit, are a bit messy to unpack because there's just, there's just so much that has to go into actually killing somebody. I know it's so much. You have to repeat the crime. And why? It's like, Jesus, that it just seemed like it was way too much just to commit murder. Well, and it's it's it I think it's true of any sort of 
technology that comes along that there's always going to be something wrong with it or there's always there's always people that are going to be willing to manipulate it to their will be it good or bad and 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 with this film being so far set in the future there is an impressive display of technology and it's remarkable to see how much we're seeing of it in today's world you mentioned uh, those retina scanners and those personal advertisements is that that was just like really sort of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the prescient technology in minority report. So, I mean, well, that interface that Anderton uses to dissect future crimes, I mean, that looks exactly like um, the connect controller for the Xbox, you know, just moving things around on the, the board and, you know, rewinding and breaking apart um well, obviously the smart cars on those maglevs um they're actually the military is working on developing um insect robots that would go into like a dangerous building as a means of covert surveillance and however i mean the the more pipe dream aspect technology of the film is the jetpack and it's it's this is not the only film we've seen a jetpack in but <laughs> we i think people want jetpacks so bad that they're so willing to overlook the potential dangers of them just so they can say they have a jetpack yeah i i never got the jetpack thing <laughs> to me it's like yeah it doesn't seem that great I, i'd rather do like the water thing you know where you like shoot yourself up in the air using like water but like an actual jetpack flying around, it just seems like such a so impractical and like a waste of like pollution, you know, <laughs> like the whole thing just pollutes the world. I mean, yeah, you have a bunch of flame shooting down your backside. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, I mean, it's a jet pack, meaning you don't it's not a jet suit. Brand, <laughs> so your fuel is also very limited, which means that your range of said jet pack is also very limited. What's the point? <laughs> they just look cool That's exactly what's the point of it <laughs> i don't know man they, they're they not that pra they're very impractical like we see it in the alley when john anderton beats up all the cops like it's because they have jetpacks and their movement is restricted they can only go certain directions i mean i don't get them but you know some people want them I mean, outside of Star Wars, I, I really do think that this was the last film that featured like a, a jet pack, <laughs> then, the, at least that I can remember. Same. Same. Uh, jet pack. I don't even. It's, <laughs> oh, it's like hoverboards. It's like, what? Why, why would you want a hoverboard? That doesn't make sense. It's ridiculous. And I mean, I mean, I just don't get like what the jet pack does. I mean, all it really did was. <laughs> It was all it did was just provide a cool entrance for <laughs> the pre crime pre crime officers as they're trying to stop Anderton from killing somebody. Dude, same. I didn't get it either. It just it did. Exactly. Yeah, and while and while they're busting Anderton, they're ignoring probably the dozens of other crimes that are happening just so they can go capture a potential future murderer. I know. And, and that's not to mention at the beginning, like the awesome opening of the movie with Howard, where they just like come flying down into his house when he's about to kill his wife. 
Like they break his roof. They break they cause severe property damage to his house and his family. Like, does the pre-crime pay for that? Or are they like, hey, you go son, build the insurance? Like, I've never I never understood <laughs> that with this film. No, the cops don't pay for anything like that that's your own <laughs> you pay for that i mean that's true anywhere like if uh like the, the like cops if they're like say for instance you own a building and there's a like there's a murder that happens in your building the cops don't clean that up the county doesn't come clean that up that's up to you to pay for a crime scene cleanup service to get that you pay for that out of pocket oh what the hell man that's garbage <laughs> I mean, but yeah, I mean, it's it's an aspect of the film that like that can't be ignored. They're just they're focusing solely on the murders and they're ignoring the crimes like drug trafficking, kidnapping, child abuse, domestic violence. Like, well, don't don't they have like a throwaway line at the beginning about that stuff? Like, why not rapes or anything? Yeah, but then they have the line like because nothing's more destructive than the metaphysical act of murder or whatever. And it's it's. Like yeah. it, it takes if you really kind of look at like any sort of like a long term criminal, they rarely build. They rarely just say, I'm going to go, you know, just randomly kill somebody that I mean, random yeah. violent crime like that is more of a one off than anything else. And like a crime of passion. Yeah, like a crime of passion. That's I mean, I I hate to trivialize murder and criminality in this way, but yeah, it, it, it is. <laughs> The statistics kind of pan out on that. I mean, somebody uh-huh. will start with like, you know, petty theft or grand theft or whatever. Then it'll build up to, you know, rape or robbery, assault. And then then you get to murder. I mean, the violent crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, so criminals, a lot of like long term criminals will kind of build build their way up from small crime then to big crime. Yeah, it's a uh, it may be it. If the research is true, it has a snowball effect, essentially. So then it's like, well, where do you cut it off, you know? They said the metaphysical elements of committing murder is so great that that's why they chose that. I would say, like, rape is pretty tough, too. But, I mean, that's, like, really tough. Like, how can you track all that, you know, with the pre-crime people? Or instead of having cops that are pretty much just relying on psychics, you had decent actual cops that go out and investigate crimes and get criminals off the street as opposed to well let's just focus on murderers and then we'll be fine (laughs) yeah right (laughs) he using the aid of psychics when they have a program that's not really that perfect yeah yeah i get you Eh, (laughs) and obviously like yeah go for it i mean and like and i think you were about to touch on this obviously we've talked about pre-crime a heck of a lot in this episode, but I think it's important to ask, is there a possibility for pre-crime to exist in the real world? Hell no. I don't believe it. Not a chance. (laughs) Come on. When was the last psychic that you went to, Chris? Uh, (laughs) You know, I could, I can honestly say that I've never, ever been to a psychic, nor do I have an interest in going to (laughs) visit one, but I actually did find some actual science that is help doesn't exactly help prevent crime, but it's actually helping to aid police departments in sort of preventing crime and being more effective in it. Okay. So there's Shoot. an IB there's an IBM program titled the Criminal Reduction Utilizing Statistical History 
or more commonly known as CRUSH, the acronym CRUSH. It was developed at the University of Memphis, and it's actually been used by the Memphis Police Department for over 10 years. And in the 10 years it's been used, it's been this single program has been credited for a 31% drop in crime and a 15% drop in violent crime. And this program was actually so successful that in 2014, it was modified to predict traffic collisions. And that's called the Crash Reduction Analyzing Statistical History, or the acronym CRASH. So there is real-world potential for something like that. And I actually read that this program was also adopted by a, a town in England. I forget. I don't have the name of the town right in front of me, but I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that something like this hasn't been implemented like in a bigger city, you know, like Chicago or Detroit, Los Angeles, Miami or whatever, because this seems like it's working. I mean, we have enough data over the course of 10 years to say, hey, this works. That's fascinating. Yeah, I wonder why not. It could be expensive to implement. I mean, it, I mean, because training officers and hiring new pe and hiring new people that's uh, that's that's expensive. So I mean, I mean, I I can kind of understand, but part of me wants to ask, how come this isn't everywhere if it works so well? Exactly. And why do we have stupid red light cameras that don't work? <laughs> don't diminish instead they give me hundred dollar tickets those hate them so much i mean but the idea of like predicting crime or uh criminal behavior i mean and i've talked about the idea the field of criminal profiling but that's been in use since the 1970s by the fbi but the issue with oh, yeah. criminal profiling is that there's no real regulating body for this field and the majority of it is based upon anecdotal evidence. I mean, and mm-hmm. the problem with it is, too, it's just it requires no actual training. Like, you don't go to school and take a course called criminal profiling. You'll take a course in psychology or something. But literally anyone could become a criminal profiler. You just have to be very observant and read case notes. But, I mean, you're just studying people's behavior. You, if you read enough you know, true crime books or psychology books, you could probably become a criminal profiler tonight if you wanted to. <laughs> well, yeah. And you got to be able to, yeah, you study the, the behavior patterns and you have to somehow be able to recognize. But, it, but I feel like it's impossible to track like pre-crime, you know, the, uh, the person that is in charge of that, they usually track the the profilers figure them out after they've committed the murder. But they, it's I feel like it's almost impossible to know who's like, you know, like a rapist or a murderer. It's it, unless they do it. Yeah. It's really hard. So I guess, you know, pre-crime, it would be nice to like live in that world. I think it would be great if it lessens the murders and everything. Um, I wouldn't give a crap. Because it seemed like the only way pre-crime was going to happen is if it was like really going to happen and they were 100% sure that you were going to go through with physically killing someone instead of more like, well, I hate my boss. So if it was real, then maybe I would be down, you know, but I just don't see it happening. I don't think it would be real like it would happen in our world. But who knows? I mean, apparently... The government's going to release stuff on UFOs in the next, like, half year. So maybe if aliens are real, man, 
pre-crime could be real. No, if the aliens are rear, uh, real, they are staying well away from this messed up dunster fire of a planet right now. <laughs> That's true. Would you want to live in this world, pre-crime? You know, I, I have to agree with you that the idea of pre-crime is attractive, but we also see how the system can be manipulated, and that, to me, is the reason why I wouldn't want to live in this world because then you have the people who know how to manipulate the system still going out there and committing crimes you have it's yeah and it it take and it took the literal director of pre-crime committing a murder to bring down this system (laughs) not the top cop killing two people or killing one person and being framed for another and to bring down the system no like oh we can only end it since we know the director is now a murderer yeah and all you have to do is just get rid of agatha and then you can kill whoever the hell you want because she's the strongest right yeah so fair enough uh speaking of killing (laughs) i would say do 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 it's time for toxic fandom baby oh boy yeah you know, there was a, there was a surprising amount of of people who took to the internet to voice dis- displeasure, but for this week in toxic Dude. fandom, I found this courtesy of IMDb. And when John is arrested and the halo is placed on him, he is taken to the pre-crime department of containment like the other pre-crime inmates. But John is accused of two murders and would be booked into DC jail awaiting trial. And when the film came out, it was it was set fifty two years in the future. So it's amazing to me that somebody has some type of foresight into how the criminal justice system works in an age where psychic people are predicting murders that they have a fee- that they know the intricacies of booking people into jail as opposed to just putting them in containment. That was that was pretty cool scene though, huh? The guy playing the organ for him though, right? Yeah, he says, "Oh, it calms them down." Like, no, it doesn't, because nobody likes hearing organ music, man. No, <laughs> it just pisses them off. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, you know that that is uh, that is true. <laughs> my uh, so my thing was where and okay, so my thing was a guy was talking about. Leo Crow's actual death. He said that the death is a fallacy because a poli- decorated police officer, Chief John Anderton, would be able to practice simple trigger discipline. <laughs> so he's like, it's understandable in his fit of rage, he would be less careful uh, as he struggles with the temptation to murder the man who he thinks murdered his son. But after he regained composure and attempted to arrest Crow, Especially after he learned the truth of Crow's identity and motivations, Anderton should practice better discipline, trigger discipline, and not shoot Crow. However, but when the men struggled and the pistol was pulled to uh, Crow's chest, his finger was still on the trigger, which is ridiculous for a trained police officer. So, (laughs) this guy is saying... The death of Crow could have been easily avoided with better trigger fingers. You know who wrote that? It was probably some disgruntled security (laughs) guard who wishes they were a cop and is just 
and is just professing some sort of odd wish fulfillment by watching a Tom Cruise future cop film. <laughs> I know. It's so great. <laughs> that was so funny. I found another one, though, that said, you know, if he would have just waited 10 minutes after the uh, pre-crime thing would have happened, then he would have uh, been fine. He could have avoided his future of murder. Yeah, but then we don't have a movie, so yeah, there you go. (laughs) So stupid, man. Oh, I love Toxic Fandom so much. Well, that's what bothered people on the internet, but did you have anything that bothered (laughs) you personally? Did you have a lens flare in this film, Sean? Unfortunately, my lens flare was uh, Tom Cruise's eyes. Oh, I was so mad. Well, actually, there was a couple. So I would say the ex machina of his eyes, like still being able to open and close and have access to pre-crime, to me was kind of weird. And because especially if he's like the cop that they're going after, why would they still give him security clearance into the buildings, right? So I didn't really like that. I thought that was an ex machina. But then a major... The lens flare to me that keeps on getting me every single time is when John Anderton goes into the the botanist, the lady that creates pre-crime, and she, like, gives him the rundown of everything about Agatha, and then she just, like, randomly kisses him <laughs> after it. I never understood that scene. I never got it. I mean, it's a great scene. The actress is amazing, but every time I watch it, I'm like, why did she kiss him? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she was just lonely. I mean... Maybe her plants just weren't doing it for her anymore. <laughs> the plant, yeah, crazy plant lady. I save your life now. Suck my tongue. Suck oh my God. How about you, man? You know, um, <laughs> how about you? Mine happened um, pretty late in the film, and it was um, after the point where um, Anderton had killed Leo Crow. And in every single police television show or movie. You see the detectives or the crime scene technicians always wearing gloves when they're going over the scene and collecting evidence. (laughs) But when Whitworth and Mm. Fletcher are examining that murder scene, no one is wearing gloves. All they're doing (laughs) is contaminating the crime scene. (laughs) It's like you all claim to be cops and yet you don't know basic crime scene processing and even fletcher was like i've never seen a murder scene before so it's like okay that somehow excuses you from not putting on exam gloves like what are you doing man did you not go to school (laughs) man that's just crazy i never i didn't notice that good catch chris good freaking catch (laughs) Uh. Well, you know, speaking of murder scenes, though, did you have a red shirt? Red shirt for me. Ah! I mean, no, I didn't have a red shirt. I don't think so. No, I I don't recall anyone that died. I mean, the red shirt would maybe be the guy that uh, Anderton, like, does the stick whatever it is, the shock stick, and the dude, like, pukes all over the girl when he's, like, trying to escape them with their jetpack scene. That kind of sucked. So my red shirt would be for his puke, but otherwise that's it, man. <laughs> yeah, those, those six sticks were um, all kinds of disgusting. I 
could not imagine Ugh. being shocked with something that instantly just makes you throw up. I would be so sick after that. <laughs> right? But no, did you, you have anything? Did anyone die? You know, not too many people died in this film, but I actually want to nominate a yellow shirt in this film, the unsung hero. And I right. I want to nominate Jad as the yellow shirt in this film. And the reason why is he remains loyal to John even after he's arrested. And when Laura calls in that favor, he Jad hacks in or whatever and plays Agatha's data stream and reveals that Lamar was the the killer. He murdered Agatha's mother in order to keep pre-crime going. And he in addition to John and Laura, help bring Lamar down and end pre-crime as we know it. So no red shirt for me, but Jad is my yellow shirt. All right, fair enough. That's not bad. I, You know what? I'll agree with you on that. He he was really nice. And doesn't he, uh, he waits to push the silent alarm? He gives him like two minutes? No, that was Wally, the um, the technician that helps the uh, the precogs in their in their <laughs> photon milk thing. Creepy Wally. Oh, that's right, Wally. What a name! What a name! <laughs> but kudos, man. Kudos. All right. Well, sweet. So now that we've talked about all that stuff, let's go on to the uh, legacy of Minority Report. All right, we'll breeze through so, this. We'll breeze through this real quick yeah. because uh, I think we're uh, we're a bit pressed for time. But against a budget of one hundred and two million dollars. Minority Report grossed over $358 million, uh, at the box office that year when it was actually the 10th highest grossing film of 2002. It, it, at the, yeah, so, and that was a pretty stacked year in films. I mean, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers was out. Uh, Spider-Man came out, Men in Black 2. So it was a pretty solid year in films. And um, Minority Report currently holds a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes as well as an 80 on Metacritic. Again, internet reviews in this day and age take those with a grain of salt. So, but pretty decent reviews for a nearly 20 year old film. Um, Roger Ebert called it a masterpiece and even named it the best okay. film of the year. But to me, considering oh, wow. The Two Towers came out in 2002, um, I hesitate to agree with him on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair, fair. Was nom the Minority Report was nominated for one Academy Award that was the category of Best Sound Editing, but lost this award to The Two Towers because if you were uh, if you were up for a technical Academy Award and you were up against a Lord of the Rings film in for three straight years, you weren't winning any of those things. So yeah. was yeah. <laughs> nominated <laughs> was nominated for a ton of Saturn Awards. It was nominated for a total of eleven and uh yeah. won four of those awards. It won for Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, Best Writing, and Best Science Fiction Film. And in addition to that was nominated for Best Actor. Best Supporting Actor, Best mm -hmm. Costumes, Best Visual Effects, and Best Music, as well as Best Makeup. So pretty, it was pretty well represented at the um, that year's Saturn Awards. Wow. Okay. And at the time, so about 2002, the film was adapted into a video game. However, the plot of the game 
differed quite significantly from the film and this is this is the problem that we've talked about with a lot of film to video game adaptations is it's a rush production you don't have a full sense of what the film is going to be like yet and it also didn't help that Tom Cruise didn't allow his likeness to be used for John Anderton so you just have a generic looking ah. blonde guy playing Tom, playing John Anderton in the video game and to the surprise of no one, the game received mixed reviews and was just doo-doo stew. I mean, also, the name of the game is Everybody Runs. So, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a game right there, man. What a title. Gripping. Gripping. <laughs> and in- I know they also made a TV series in 2014. They did, and that's the weirdest part to me, is I did not think that- this film had any sort of life beyond the ending of it because it showed it has that zoom out of the three former now former precogs living in a cabin away from everyone so they're like their their gifts will never affect them again and yet one of them i think it was um dashel one of the male precogs kind of rejoins mm-hmm. society and wants to help stop crime like what was the you've just defeated the point of the end of the film by saying like i want to help fight crime it's like don't you aren't your gifts like physically painful like doesn't it bother you to see people brutally murdered well those are good questions and that's probably why it was canceled <laughs> <laughs> again to the surprise of no one the the show had very low ratings and was eventually canceled after 10 episodes so <laughs> shocking <laughs> again to the surprise of no one <laughs> to no oh god well legacy baby so i guess now we can go on to our uh, rating here at the force fed sci-fi we have the awesome rating scale of would not watch would watch would own or would host a viewing party chris rupp what would you rate minority report you know, it's hard to turn down a good Steven Spielberg science fiction film, given how much the man has contributed to the genre. And this really is an interesting film, maybe not so much visually, because in many, many moments it's very monotone, but it raises several great questions regarding the ideas of free will and predeterminism. And it's also amazing to see just how prescient that this film has become in regards to predicting future technology. And I enjoy the performances all around, particularly of Tom Cruise and Max von Sydow. And like you mentioned earlier, I will always watch an unhinged or an emotional Tom Cruise leading a film. Cause I think there's nobody better at doing that. However, some of the film's visual aspects have become very dated there's just some moments to me that's just like and eh, that's not great cgi but that's also to be expected from a film that is nearly 20 years old and trying to grapple with the sheer mechanics of lamar's murder to keep pre-crime going it just becomes exhausting to keep track of because i'm watching that end of it thinking i've seen this ending before done better and much more simpler so <laughs> So the big reveal comes, pre-crime's done, and and I think one of the things that really kind of holds back this film from being truly great is is that ending because it wraps things up almost too neatly. 
you know, pre-crime ends, all those uh, would-be criminals are released. Uh, Anderton is back with his wife and she's pregnant again. And the, the precogs are, are free to live their life in peace. And because of that saccharine type ending and some of the visual effects and Lamar's, you know, just insane grappling with the mechanics of his crime. I have to call minority report a would own. Right on, man. It's a great film, but I don't want to have to sit people down and explain to people just how Lamar pulled off his great crime. <laughs> how about you? What would you rate minority report? All right. Minority report. Like I've said before, um, it's one of my, it's a good film to me. It was a film that I used to always watch pretty much every summer. Um, like you said, Cruz is great. This is vintage Cruz when he was just still taking on these really complex emotional roles. It's Spielberg. So it's always a classic film. Great storytelling, great writing, great characters, great cast all around. It's great to see a film. I enjoy films like that in the future where you get to see and kind of compare and contrast. Um, overall, though, I definitely agree with you. I think the ending is where it falls. Uh, the murder and kind of like the reveal is nice the first time. But if you see the film more and more, for me, what I find more each time returning isn't necessarily how Lamar did it. It's more the details surrounding Anderton and the environment. So with that being said, I would agree with you as a would own. I wouldn't host a viewing party. I just don't think it's a perfect film, but it is a good film. It's enjoyable. And if you like sci-fi and film noir, Tom Cruise, you're going to love it. So that's my rating, baby. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Hi, hey, Marks. Hi, Marks all around for Minority Report. It's a, that's a good one. Amen to that. Amen to that. So let's move on to, we'll wrap this up with Major Samantha, our friendly number generator. She's going to pick our next film. Yes, she's going to help us pick from our list of 118 films. And from that list, she has selected... It is number 31. It is a film from 1982, directed by John Carpenter and starring Kurt Russell. It is The Thing. Holy crapola. No way. It's finally here, Chris. It's finally here. Yes, I can't wait. That'll be our episode for next time. Please tune in, watch the film with us, and listen for next time as we discuss john carpenter's the thing and if you enjoyed today's episode please head on over to apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review that's the best place to do it and it really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show we are across the spectrum of social media with facebook twitter and instagram all at force fed sci-fi you can check out and download episodes from apple podcasts google podcasts spotify the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, 
We will see you next time.